A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Teaching History Her Way podcast. I am your host, Cheryl Ann Amendola, and I am so happy that you are here with me today. As we know, February ushers in Black History Month. And to me, Black History Month is a celebration of Black history, of resilience and of agency and of all of the beauty that Black history has to offer. Now, I understand the idea that Black history is American history and it should be celebrated every day. And I am working as hard as I can in my classroom to make sure that Black voices are always included in my classes. So celebrating Black History Month doesn't mean that the only time we study Black history is during February. February is just a month where we can highlight it and celebrate extra special. However, we're doing this every day in our classes so that students who are Black can see themselves in the curriculum, see themselves in our history, and so that students who are not Black can learn a history that they might not be familiar with or that may have been hidden from them in previous classes or part of my lesson where I'm centering black people that means that I am centering black agency and I am centering um, or looking for resilience in order to teach I don't want to teach only about oppression I want to teach about all of the amazing wonderful things that black people throughout history have done and continue to do So Black History Month and centering black people in our daily lessons helps us move toward a more complete and accurate study of American history. And that's what we want to do for our students. So in today's episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about Black Wall Street. Because up until a couple of years ago, even I hadn't heard about Black Wall Street. And I've been in many, many history classes. I have a political science degree, I have a social studies education degree, I have a master's degree in American history, and all throughout my education, I had not heard of Black Wall Street. And Black Wall Street is an amazing story of resilience, and it's also a story that helps us study race in America, but also helps us give attention to historical analysis. And the ways that African-American people have contributed to politics, have contributed to the politics of race, and also the way that white people have responded to those contributions. So let's get a little into the history of Black Wall Street. So Black Wall Street was founded in 1906 in the Greenwood area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it was developed on territory that had been given to Native Americans when they were forcibly removed um, from their territory. And that's another episode completely. So some African Americans who were former slaves or were enslaved by tribes who were in Oklahoma, they um, they went to Greenwood. And through the Dawes Act, the United States gave land to individual Native peoples. And many black sharecroppers relocated to the region as well. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of layers in how Greenwood was founded. So many, many African-American people moved to Oklahoma. And one in particular who was named O.W. Gurley was a 
black landowner and purchased the Greenwood section in Tulsa and it was 40 acres of land and he had the first black business in Greenwood in 1906. So it started out where he built a boarding house for African Americans and as people came to Greenwood to live because they heard that it was a safe haven and it was a place where black people were encouraged to succeed, O.W. Gurley loaned money to people who wanted to start businesses. And that started Black Wall Street. So there were lots of black entrepreneurs that came to the Greenwood area of Tulsa to start their own businesses and to flee the lives of oppression that Jim Crow was causing in the South. So Um, Another person that came to Black Wall Street, his name was J.B. Stratford, and he opened a luxury hotel, the Stratford Hotel, and it was the largest black-owned hotel in the country at that point. And um, that's where it all began. Black Wall Street became self-sustaining, so black businesses were getting money from black people, and that money would circulate within the neighborhood. In fact, there was so much money in Black Wall Street that JSTOR happens to report that the average income of black families was above what minimum wage is today. And a dollar circulated 36 to 100 times and remained in Greenwood. And six black families owned their own planes. So Greenwood becomes this self-sustaining, incredibly successful place for African Americans to live and work. So Black Wall Street or the Greenwood section of Tulsa became a place where people thought that they could escape racial oppression and that they would be able to succeed economically, socially, and politically. And if Jim Crow hadn't been around, it's a possibility that The Greenwood section wouldn't have been needed or maybe it wouldn't have existed, but it was absolutely necessary because in the Deep South, black people were oppressed politically and socially and economically, and Greenwood was an outlet for them. So by O.W. Gurley loaning money to other black entrepreneurs looking to start their own businesses, these entrepreneurs didn't need to rely on white banks who wouldn't give give them loans simply because they were black. And they didn't have to worry about white landowners or they didn't have to worry about a pushback on black-owned businesses because it was a black community. There were lots of different types of businesses in the area. Notably, there was a candy shop. There was the Dreamland Theater, which was a 750-seat movie theater. And also... There, there was a newspaper called the Tulsa Star. In fact, I've gotten some recipes out of the Tulsa Star. You can read all of the, uh, all the Tulsa Star issues online. And um, Nellie Maxwell has a, has a column called The Kitchen Cabinet. And um, I've gotten some really wonderful recipes on there. I did a recipe on History in the Kitchen um, when I was talking about Black Wall Street and I made some apple dowdy. And this was just an advice column uh, by black women for black women. And... Um, Nellie Maxwell actually ends up being pretty famous. So um, the community had a hospital. It had a public library. I mean, this place was amazing. It was a center of black wealth. It had about 10,000 residents. And um, 
because Tulsa was segregated, it was racially segregated at the time, Greenwood offered a place for Black-owned businesses and Black people to patronize those businesses. And that 36 uh, to 100 times that a dollar stayed within the community made it so that the businesses could could um, could thrive. So Black Wall Street is an amazing, amazing part of our history. One that was literally built from the ground up because it was just 40 acres of land to begin with and it becomes this entire thriving, incredibly wealthy neighborhood. And it was also supposed to be a haven from the violence and racism of the Deep South. However, the Greenwood section was not immune to that. Um, Red Summer of 1919 um, was two years before the um, before the Tulsa massacre, when the Greenwood section of Tulsa was basically destroyed. So in Red Summer, there were at least 25 incidents of race violence or race-motivated violence. And mob violence happened in major cities across the United States. Many, many people were killed, most of whom were black. And this Red Summer set up a day of racist violence that started on... May 31st, 1921, and didn't end until June 1st, 1921. And a white mob came to the Greenwood district of Tulsa for a really, really bloody day. This white mob attacked the black residents. They attacked the black businesses in the neighborhood. Things were set on fire. About 35 blocks in the Greenwood district were burnt to the ground, and nearly 300 people, mostly black people, were killed. And thousands upon thousands of Tulsa's black residents lost their businesses and they lost their homes. The reason all this happened is because of an incident that occurred with an African-American young man named Dick Rowland who got in an elevator that was operated by a woman named Sarah Page. And Sarah Page is white. So there are different reports about what happened inside the elevator what historians believe and what people who were alive at the time believe is that Mr. Rowland accidentally came into contact with Miss Page in some way. He, according to some reports, he stepped on her foot or he tripped and fell, but she screamed. And part of the reason I'm sure why she screamed is because of the demonization of black men in American media. We can't forget that this is about the time that Birth of a Nation is out and a lot of the reasons why there are Jim Crow laws is because Southerners decide that they needed to protect white women's purity against black men, which we know is absolutely bogus, but that was their reasoning for oppressing black men and black people in general so one person who heard the scream called the police and Roland was arrested on May 31st then a white paper in Tulsa said that Mr. Roland assaulted Miss Page and when people heard about this rumor of assault then it escalated even more like a horrible game of telephone and it turned into an accusation of rape, according to rumors. 
Now, the black residents were worried about lynching. They were worried that Roland would be lynched by an angry mob. And lynching, we have to remember, is the white mob's way of denying someone due process of law. So Roland would have been denied due process of law because of lynching. So after he received a whole bunch of death threats, um, residents of Black Wall Street got went to Tulsa's courthouse where he was being held, and that was where a confrontation broke out between black residents and white mobs at the courthouse. Both were mar- both were armed, and shots were fired. So after that, um, the incident made its way into the Greenwood District. And a white mob looted and burned almost all of it. And residents tried to defend themselves, but they couldn't. Um, Some of the white mob reportedly had machine guns. And some survivors said that attackers even flew over Tulsa, the Greenwood part of Tulsa, in private airplanes where they dropped firebombs on buildings. So... The Tulsa Race Massacre, we're not going to call it a riot, we're going to call it a massacre because that's what it was, sought to deliberately break down this area of black success. So it's important for us to analyze Black Wall Street from start to finish. And quite frankly, it's not finished because there's still revitalization efforts going on in Tulsa to this day in the Greenwood District. There's a wonderful museum that you can visit online, but they're currently closed because of COVID to learn more about it. But we have to think about that beginning part, that resiliency against Jim Crow, that agency of building a neighborhood, that agency of building businesses and building wealth and finding a way to make all that possible despite all of the racial policies and racial attitudes, racist policies, racist attitudes that were working against these people. And we also need to look at Red Summer 1919, and we need to look at what happened in Tulsa and how the system is set up so that rather than working together, people work against one another. And the point of studying this history is so that we can, one, learn to value and appreciate accomplishments of people who look like us or who don't look like us, but also to learn about and analyze what's going on in the United States then that's still going on in the United States now that makes this kind of violence erupt and happen. And how do we stop it? So as we're celebrating Black History Month, we are celebrating Black agency and we are celebrating Black beauty and we are celebrating Black resilience and Black history and Black accomplishments. And we can also question... How can we make it more possible and more fair today by studying that history and how it still affects us right now? Thank you for listening to the Teaching History Her Way podcast today. Again, I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and if you'd like to find me between episodes, you can find me at my website, www.teachinghistoryherway.com, or you can come visit me on Twitter at History Her Way. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening.